Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 27th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And I am thrilled to announce that uh, returning to the podcast, despite a desperate effort to spend a summer off the podcast, is our very own Christine Rosen. Christine, welcome back to people. You have no idea how many people have said to me, where's Christine? We need Christine. We've got to get Christine back. It's not the same without Christine. And I agreed and I importuned you and got you to agree to come back when you when you can be back this summer. Yes, thank you so much. I uh, I just can't quit you guys. What can I say? It was uh, I've missed you all. And who knew that when I decided to take a few weeks off, uh, you know, the entire cultural the revolution of the past uh, month would happen. So very happy to be back. Well, that you did that. It's your fault, obviously, it's my fault. because it's you true. weren't here to keep the nation in equilibrium. <laughs> and we've now been thrown into, you know, the Chaos we're off disorder. orbit, you know, the moon is going to hurtle into the sun, all of that. Um, anyway, so uh, you were not here on Friday when we uh, very gingerly and very gloomily and confusedly tried to uh, deal with the consequences of the of the uh, of the Dobbs decision um, overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey versus uh, Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania. Um, so we've now had a weekend of reactions. And what strikes me about the reactions is at once how utterly apocalyptic they are, right? Uh, women are no longer free. I mean, the, the dissenting opinion basically says women are no longer free in the United States. Uh, You know, terrible things are going to happen. Everything is terrible. The country is, you know, the, the, uh, the tyranny has now beset us and all that. And yet I don't feel, I somehow thought that it was going to feel more um, epical and more um, transformational. And maybe the forces that want to, rally against this haven't quite figured out where they're going to go and how they're going to do it but the demonstrations and things seem to kind of fizzle a bit they didn't quite you know it didn't have the same juice that i would have certainly than the women's march did or then you know certainly the george floyd protests did they just it didn't quite seem to have achieved the kind of visceral feeling now maybe that's just because i'm not part of the pro-choice world so i don't really appreciate the degree of the intensity um but i'm watching it very closely what's your what's your take on it christine well i I, two things struck me immediately one is that i was really grateful that both biden and some of the major pro-choice organizations came came out right after the decision and, and condemned any violence. That was important because we've seen acts of violence against pregnancy crisis centers, obviously the assassination attempt against Kavanaugh. These were really bad things that needed to be called out sooner, but it, I think it was really good that once the decision came down, those groups did say, let's not be violent. This group, Jane's Revenge, which is horrible, uh, was claiming they were going to have a night of rage. And you're right, it didn't really materialize. There's a lot of protests down by the court, but it stayed mainly, mainly peaceful in Arizona, a few other places, there was more violent clashes with law enforcement. But I think it's really interesting to me. I have uh, following all this, you think, you know, one of the reasons that uh, to answer your question as to why it hasn't cohered around a simple message yet is that I think a lot of Americans look at this and say, oh, okay, the court has given back to the political process, an issue that was removed from the political process 50 years ago. Some people are rational like that. Some people just don't care. And the extremists on either side are going to dig in and try to find a message. And they haven't settled on one on the pro-choice side yet because there's a lot of inner turmoil on in the Democratic Party and among even the pro-choice groups about what that message should be. There's there's a sort of moderate message of abortion is health care. We should talk about it as health care. That's going to appeal to the moderates who who you know we need to win to our side. But then there's another very, very well-funded and angry group that also wants abortion on demand with no restrictions, including no, you know, uh, they want children to be able to pursue abortion without their parents' consent. They want, you know, abortion on demand through the third trimester with no restrictions. That group, which often talks about pregnancy as if a child, a beloved child is a parasite, is not going to win hearts and minds. 
that said, on the pro-life side, there's also a persuasion campaign that needs to happen that that is only just now going to begin. And it will also require, I think, some pushback on the more extremist side there, because most Americans do want access to abortion in the first trimester. And, uh, you know, 15, 12, 15 weeks, those are the those are the numbers that would bring us more into conformity with European countries, for example, which ban abortion after that time period under unless under you know extreme circumstances. So I think the confusion comes from the fact that they're in brand new territory again. It's been 50 years. They haven't had to persuade. They've had a foil in the court holding this uh, row over their heads. And now they have to actually think about legislating this. And it's a messy issue to legislate. Noah, you you have made the point that and I think you're very on target here that um, most people don't want to think about this. It makes them very uncomfortable if they support the right to abortion, if they're not really ideologically committed to it. uh, It's very easy for them to get uneasy about the way people talk about it in that camp. And if you are lean in the pro-life direction, despite the moral clarity provided by the very plain idea that abortion is murder and you shouldn't be killing the unborn and you shouldn't kill children. Nonetheless, Tay-Sachs disease or, you know, again, the very, very insanely rare cases of, you know, rape and incest leading to pregnancy and stuff like that um, makes people uneasy on that side as well. And when you, the question is who's going to get punished if you're right about this note, who gets punished when this issue comes and becomes at the moves right into the center of the total American political conversation? If, despite the fact that majority of people say they want abortion, or two thirds of people say they think abortion should be legal, whatever that means, people aren't going to like this being the central topic of the 2022 midterm elections, and they may take it out on the people who forced them to confront it. Well, who would that be? Because it's the Supreme Court. I mean, this is essentially what the Supreme Court decided is that Americans have been removed and their elected representatives have been removed from this equation for 50 years, which is, and I tried to articulate this in a post because it's not a very coherent thought, frankly. But nevertheless, why the row having been so indefensible in its constitutional and legal logic has nevertheless proven durable in part because it gave Americans a way to, who don't want to think about abortion, which is most of them, uh, a way to not have to talk about it. There's a sort of durable legal question here that prevented Americans from having to really think very deeply about abortion, which most Americans don't. And then those who do, who spend a lot of time thinking about abortion on either side of the issue, command the issue. But within certain legal constraints that would provide the rest of the country with enough relief to believe that what they like, which is essentially as unrefined as these views are, and as contradictory and conflicting as these views are, they don't like abortion, but they also don't want it to be illegal, elective abortion, to be illegal in all cases, particularly before the 15th week. And now they have to think about it. Now they have to legislate on the topic. Now it's a live issue in every election and not a live issue before the courts, which is ideal. It's better for the social compact. It'll create eventually the kind of equilibrium across the states that Ruth Bader Ginsburg complained was arrested in the process of, uh, of after Roe was was became the law of the land, essentially. And all the states no longer competed amongst each other to find that kind of durable equilibrium. So now this is back. How will voters react to it? Yeah, I think most of them are going to be very annoyed by having to think about this issue, by having to self-govern on this issue that they haven't had to do for a half century. Um, they don't like talking about abortion, makes them queasy. But now we all have to think and talk about this. Can I just that's add just that, the nature of self-governance. And that's that is the tactic. That's the assumption, I think, that a lot of the most progressive Democrats are taking. That's why you saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others going all the news shows this Sunday calling the Supreme Court illegitimate, saying this is an illegitimate court because it overturned this precedent. They lie. It's illegitimate because they lied in their confirmation hearings. Of course, it's ridiculous. Um, it, by that standard, Sotomayor also lied during her confirmation hearings about her views on gun rights and precedent. But the but I think that attack on the legitimacy of the court is what is the left's answer to exactly the conundrum that I think Noah's 
absolutely right about that it's harder for people to talk about the actual democratic process, the way our system was set up for people to battle over these difficult moral and political issues at the state level, which is which is where this has now been sent back. Um, it's much easier to say our whole system is corrupt. This is illegitimate. This minoritarian branch of you know the judiciary is now telling taking rights away from women. That's an easier message to sell to people who don't want to think about abortion. And unfortunately, it's going to undermine the political process that now needs to unfold. Well, in, the, in the immediate wake of this decision, what, what was utterly predictable has happened. A burst of moral enthusiasm on both sides of this issue has emerged and everybody's testing the legal parameters of this new legal environment. And it's going to make everybody else very queasy because the only people who have had this conversation for the last half century have been the extremes on either side. That's a luxury I mean, we were afforded by Roe. I mean, they no were, longer oh, Abe, Abe, go I ahead. Jump um, I think, unfortunately, the extremes on both sides were also provoked by the dissenting opinion and by Clarence Thomas's concurrence. Um, uh, so they, they sort of set uh, the, the online activists in motion, like sent them crashing <clears throat> against each other in battle. But I think part of why the, 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 we see a lackluster relatively lackluster response in terms of what what took place on the streets across the country. Um, there's an additional reason, which is that the activist energy has been so thoroughly funneled for the past few years into race, LGBTQ. I mean, we're right in the smack in the middle of Pride Month, you know, that um, all the the troops have sort of been repurposed, you know, they've they've you've, they've got to sort of get them from there into here to say, oh, actually, this is a immensely important thing. I know we were talking about, you know, like reparations and stuff. Wait, hold, but there's this this thing just happened that you you may be too young to really know about. But, you know, it's like a, so. So they're they're actually they were kind of like caught flat footed. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And, and the idea being that, yeah, like you need to sort of like if you need to move your your forces from the outskirts of Kiev to, you know, to the Donbass, it actually takes time to get to move. You, know, you actually have to get the trucks and move them and also change the mental configuration. I sort of presumed on Friday when we were talking about this, that that would happen almost instantaneously, that it was like, okay, look, you've all had your fun with the Black Lives Matter stuff and the LGBTQ stuff, but like, we're now actually the house is now on fire. So uh, we got to let's uh, you get you got your years. And now, you know, the right to abortion has been, you know, the constitutional right to has been overturned. And now it's like scorched earth in every state and every state legislature at the federal level. All the money has got to start coming to that. Doesn't do, no more money, no more 20 billion dollars into Black Lives Matter. It's all got to go to. Planned Parenthood. But they have Whatever. a problem. They have a real problem here. White progressive women, which are the, who have been fueling that those previous movements, when they shift their attention, they've got two big challenges. One is that they're not allowed to call women women anymore. There were several, you know, sort of activist type tweets over the uh, saying, reminding everyone, you know, trans women are, you know, trans men are also able to get Wait, I've got it mixed up. Like, uh, no, yeah, trans, don't, trans, don't worry about it. Anyway, you get it. Yeah, you right. You got to call them, you, you know, uterus holders or chest feeders or whatever the, the term du jour is. So you can't even talk about women so that there's that contradiction that they're all kind of wrestling with because they want to say and do the right things. But then there's also the issue of race and abortion. The vast majority of abortions are black and brown women. That's just a fact. It's been decreasing over time. Abortion in general has been decreasing over time for all racial groups, but that is a fact. And there's a lot of, I think, uh, understandable moral discomfort with talking about race when it comes to abortion. And I've seen a lot of avoiding of that issue. That's also an issue for the for the pro-life movement, too, because if, if more women, uh, minority women are seeking abortions because they don't feel they have the support in their lives and in their families to raise children. So that's an issue for the for conservatives, too. We've again, as to Noah's earlier point, we've been able to avoid all this because of Roe. But that, I think, is another reason why you're not seeing them uh, as as eagerly and as coherently coming out with that message. Well, and a half a dozen other things that <clears throat> are supposedly now threatened by the rationale that overturned Roe, which is in Thomas's concurrence. We should probably talk a little bit about Thomas's well, concurrence because it has lit, as, as Abe said, lit, the, lit a fire under the activist class, but also given them muddied the waters in a way that 
makes them not able to talk about abortion. It's not about abortion, right? It's about all these other rights now that are that were found in the 14th Amendment and didn't exist prior to the 20th century, but the 14th Amendment uh, justifies with equal protection. So now it's Griswold, it's Obergfell, it's you know half a dozen other things that Congress never legislated, which suggests they should probably legislate some things, right? And that's where you get progressive activists okay. like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez now saying, we don't just need to codify Roe, we need to codify all the, all the rest of this stuff, which perhaps they should, but well, has, they haven't had to think about this for a very I long mean- time. This is a very, very, very interesting in terms if you're interested in sort of like uh, the dorm room argument of America, right? Um, the dorm room, you know, like how you, when you're really serious about issues and you want to like test their parameters, be Talmudic about it. Thomas's dissent with, with which no one concurred. Thomas's dissent was. We need to overturn Roe, but we're not overturning it on the right precept. The right precept is that the that the concept of, quote, substantive due process, not due process under the law, which is the language in the 14th Amendment, but substantive due process has extended rights, civil rights, uh, in an unjust, undue, and inappropriate way to things that are not properly considered civil rights or, you know, primary rights. Um, that is an intellectually very defensible and interesting proposition. And most serious conservative constitutional scholars have had to wrestle with this question of whether or not, if you're going to say, that the Supreme Court is silent on abortion. It's silent on a whole lot of things. Why are we, why are we considering something like interracial marriage a civil right? I mean, we all, nobody wants to overturn Loving v. Virginia. Nobody wants to say that there isn't a civil right to interracial marriage. And the same problem exists with Roe is that this legal bulwark has allow the extremists and the and the fringes to capture this conversation because right. they were the only ones thinking about this sort of thing. We've been we've been uh, freed from our ability to have to right. deal with these difficult issues in a legislative manner. It's just been taken over by the by the courts no longer, perhaps. OK, but so no one else concurred with Thomas. Thomas is sort of like if we're going to be intellectually honest, we need to look and say, the central principle undergirding Roe is illegitimate. And it, if it's a central principle under, under, underpinning other decisions, then they must also be illegitimate. The majority opinion deals with this in a very interesting and complicated way, which is to say that it says that the state of pregnancy is not comparable to any other condition in human existence and the I rules can confirm that I can confirm that yes that's <laughs> thank you yes you can in a way that in a way that we uh we uh you know people with not with vaginas can or whatever whatever it is you say uh cannot confirm but that it is the most unique period of all existence it is the only time in human existence in which you know a potential life or a lot, you know, and, a, and, a, and an actual, you know, inhabit the same physical space. And that, um, therefore, if you're going to deal with the question of what is and what is not constitutional, um, the conditions, the conditions raised by abortion are not reduced, are not comparable. They are, they are a thing in and of themselves. Um, and, you know, if you really, really, really stretch that and you sort of like you start getting into weird areas, like, how, is that factitious? Do they actually mean it or do they actually if, do they actually follow implicitly follow Thomas's logic, which is that if the Constitution is silent on X, is it silent on abortion? And you say, well, the 14th Amendment says, it's you know, says gay marriages, you know, has to be a civil right. Eh, come on. Like, really? I mean, is that? But Thomas went there and they, they wouldn't go there, right? I mean, they just, they wouldn't go there. So the idea is 
he's the camel's nose in the tent, right? He's one of nine, you know, we've got the most conservative majority in history. And, you know, none of the other five people who voted to, to overturn Rowan Casey would even go anywhere near where he went. So he's stating it for the record. He's putting a marker down. And, you know, 50, 60 years from now, in theory, just as he said that Harlan's descent in Plessy was the most important decision. Thomas himself said that Harlan's descent in Plessy in 1896, which established the separate but equal standard. Harlan's descent is the most important thing ever written by the Supreme Court. It was the most important document ever produced by the Supreme Court. That he would hope, I think, decades after his death, that his rebuttal here in his concurrence will be seen as the as as the visionary statement of constitutional purpose that alito's decision will not be because it is a practical decision about how to overturn roe and casey without creating an even larger crisis than you might be creating by doing that. Uh, but right, because can place. I just let, let me just say to the point about why this should be treated, and I think the majority opinion was smart to do this, uh, you can prevent pregnancy. We have many means of preventing pregnancy. You cannot prevent the race you're born. You cannot prevent that. I mean, you, you don't have to get married, but if you want to, you shouldn't be prevented from marrying because of the color of your skin. I mean, that's that's where, right, I mean, well, there let's really talk are about, Let's talk about one of those ways to prevent pregnancy, which is protected by Griswold v. Connecticut. There is no way Griswold v. Connecticut survives a test with the rationale imposed on the court, imposed on the country now by this decision in Dobbs. Griswold v. Connecticut was found in the penumbras of meaning that in the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments that created a, a, the right to privacy and due process. That's over. That's gone. Now, the court may not go case fishing. Who's going to challenge Griswold, they say. But if somebody does and the court decides to grant cert, they have no choice but to overturn Griswold. Okay, so here's where it gets really, really interesting. So very, very conservative politicians in the first 10 years of this century got very interested in the 10th Amendment. In fact, Rick Perry, who was the governor of Texas and once you know, considered like a serious candidate for president, wrote a whole book in which the 10th Amendment is sort of like the centerpiece. What we need is to have a constitutional regime that focuses on the 10th Amendment. What is the language of the 10th Amendment? The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. This is a very important piece of language because what it, it's the doctrine of unenumerated rights, and it says... If they're not if if something is not explicitly prohibited or granted by the Constitution, if something is not explicitly granted by the Constitution or prohibited by the Constitution or prohibited by you get you get them. These are unenumerated rights. You have the right to do whatever until the people or the states limit them. There's no limit in the Constitution except the Bill of Rights and whatever amendments follow the Bill of Rights on what the states may limit or, in theory, what the states may grant. In other words, the states may explicitly grant you, as, say, the New York State Constitution does, the right to an abortion. But a state can also limit your right to an abortion because it's not enumerated in the Constitution. The reason that Roe was necessary for people who wanted it was precisely that unless, since it's not enumerated in the Constitution and you don't find it in the Constitution, any state regime that permits abortion, another legislature can come in two years later and outlaw abortion. You know, uh, and so this is, so the 10th Amendment is both the salvation of the abortion regime and the thing that you're not hearing liberals talk about, because if they talked about it, they would have to acknowledge that this is a conditional right. Like all rights are conditional. The people grant themselves the right to 
<clears throat> or grant themselves the power to limit a right if it is, if they, if they want to. I mean, there are all kinds of rights you cannot limit, right? You can't, I mean, though you can, you can effectively. Speech, freedom of assembly, religion, you can't billet a soldier, you can't force someone to billet a soldier in their house, you can't force someone to testify against himself, you know, Fifth Amendment. You know, these are the, this is the, these are the famous rights that are, are, are on, cannot be removed from you. But the consent of the governed means that not all rights are right, that not all, that you, you're, you have a right to do anything until your fellow citizens speak and say, you know, I don't want you having a plot of land more than two acres in my neighborhood. My neighborhood, every, every plot of land should be, you know, two acres or more because I don't want houses like this. And they're allowed to write these rules in the county, you know, they go vote for county executive, whatever. Go ahead. Okay, but th this is why I think with this debate, what, we're, what we did see un unfold a little bit this weekend is the start of, a, of a, a way to undermine how that system has worked, right? That You're absolutely right about all of that. But the, one of the little things that came across the wire, I sent it to you guys that disturbed me, was a little uh, news story that, that the Post had about how elected prosecutors, including from the 12 states with trigger bans, you know, that, that these are the laws um, that I'm sure most of our listeners know immediately that said, as, if Roe is overturned, we immediately have, you know, uh, bans on abortion. It said over 80 district attorneys and other elected prosecutors signed a statement issued Friday through Fair and Just Prosecution Group, a national network of elected prosecutors, that they're not on a personal or moral level going to enforce the laws of their state. That concerns me going forward, because one of the ways we can have an open, often messy, but but vigorous democratic debate about these extremely complicated moral issues is that there are the people in charge of enforcing the law once the people have voted on what their representatives and, and passed legislation, that that will be upheld. We have seen this go absolutely bonkers in the criminal justice system for the last you know, 10 years. It concerns me a lot that you have people coming out of the gate who are elected to enforce the law saying, we don't care what the people want. We're not going to do this because we think we're a higher authority here. That's going to lead to a lot of conflict. Abe, let's talk about this specific conundrum. So you've got Jamel Bowie and all these people saying, you see, America is not a democracy. This is ridiculous. You have this anti-majority, you have this group that does is unresponsive to you know public opinion, and it's brought in by people this it's the senate votes on it and the senate is anti-majoritarian because every state gets two senators no matter what their population is and so we're all being ruled by this unelected tyranny right that's that that's this argument and and again does he know i mean do the people who are making this argument the delegitimization the, the of the court the court is illegitimate do they know that what the court is saying is what we are doing here is remanding this question to the people and their representatives. They're, they're elected. We are not elected representatives. We, do, we did not have the power as the Supreme Court to confer this right as a constitutional right. We are taking away from ourselves the power to say this. Go to it. Every oh, person in America who is 18 years old and can vote, this is now in your hands and the hands of the representatives that you elect. How is that the end of democracy? Well, they don't believe it. They think that's the cover story and we're fools for buying it. The real story is that um, they are theocrats who want to see a certain policy outcome. Uh, and they've covered it up with this um, august language about returning rights to states and to, and, and, and to people. Okay. But you're right. That's and also, by the way, there, there's an, there's another problem with all this and including the, the, a problem with the, the prosecutors who now say they won't be enforcing the law. What about the, the preciousness of our institutions? What about, what about, what about the war on the legitimacy of, of, of American democracy and, and, and its architecture here? Well, that that's gone. That's out the window now. That was that's still that last was, week. <laughs> that was all they were concerned with preserving on Thursday. On Friday, that's all they want to tear down. Well, so essentially what we have here then is a kind of epic war of disingenuousness. Like 
What matters is the policy outcome and not the process. And of course, the whole point about our republic is that we all agree on the rules of the process. That's what that's what confers legitimacy on everything is not only that we through our elected through our incredibly complex system do things and get things passed and all that but that that's all about process and the process includes having a court that is the check on the legislature's ability to confer rights or take rights away or whatever you know i mean that that's part of the process that the the last check against I guess majority tyranny, you know, the tyranny of the majority or majoritarian, right, is that there is this body, unelected body, there, uh, you know, uh, without, uh, you know, with a lifelong appointment to shield it from public opinion saying, I'm sorry, we know you want this. We know you want to say that, you know, all Mormons should be killed. I don't know, whatever, but you, but sorry, you can't. It's, it's another, I think it's another testament from the perspective that was a 19th century i was trying to use some extreme example from the 19th century (laughs) but they did look we don't have any anyone with any legislative experience on the court either sandra day o'connor was the last justice to have had any experience in a state in a legislature right i think that actually really helped her in terms of her pragmatic reasoning on top of her legal reasoning in a lot of cases particularly with affirmative action she understood and, and respected our institutions and how they work and so you could actually foresee a future, maybe 50 or 100 years later, where some of the things we, we agree upon now might have changed. Technology might have changed them. Public opinion might have shifted. But the only way to honestly uh, embrace our institutional integrity was to see that reflected in the legislative process and in voting. See, I, I think I've, I've heard a lot of liberals uh, since over the weekend say they can't believe that the court did such a, quote, radical thing. This is this is how they're 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 describing the decision. And I think it's very hard for them to sort of wrap their heads around the idea that while, yes, this was seismic, it wasn't actually radical. In some sense, it was the opposite of radical. I mean, because. The court is obligated to 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 come down on the side of of what it sees as as the constitutional if as being constitutional, if it if it doesn't. Then we then we are open to every manner of radicalism because because then there is no sort of spine keeping the whole thing together. I mean, that is in part what gave birth to conservative. The conservative legal movement was that beginning in the 1960s, after you know a series of historic decisions using the 14th Amendment as the source from Brown v. Board through all kinds of things, the court itself started to get increasingly radical in its application of of what it believed was the the wise judgment of how to understand our present day culminating in Roe, where they basically said yes we know it doesn't really say this in the constitution but we're going to find this anyway right which was the court bans capital punishment in 1972 capital punishment is mentioned in the constitution how can capital punishment be banned? It's the only punishment mentioned in the Constitution. And four years later, another court, after two of the radicals who had sort of gone this way, you know, over, overturned that, like said, okay, sorry, that's not right. Um, and there was a sense in which the Supreme Court, the liberals on the Supreme Court in the 1960s, because of liberal jurisprudence and because of the sort of increasingly aggressive assertion of, a new new ideas about society had unshackled themselves from the restraints and controls, not only of the constitution, but yes, of precedent. I mean, that's the whole point about Roe, right? About, excuse me, about Brown v. Board, the most celebrated decision in Supreme Court history was that it was the explicit overturning of a 50 year precedent, which was Plessy v. Ferguson. Uh, so it doesn't matter, you know, when they say, oh, well, Roe was the law for, you know, low was settled doctrine for 49 years. Yeah, well, Plessy was settled doctrine for 50 for 57 years. Does that mean that it was right? Does that mean it shouldn't have been overturned? Doesn't matter. I mean, in that sense, precedent, as they all said in this line that Christine evoked that, you know, people are saying, ah, you see, they should all be impeached because they lied about how they felt about precedent. 
which is they all said, and Kagan said it, and Sotomayor said it in different contexts. It's like, oh, precedent's very important. Precedent is so important. We understand precedent is incredibly important. We're so incredibly, well, how do you feel about Roe v. Wade? Precedent, it's a precedent. It's a very important precedent. It's a very serious precedent. That doesn't mean it can't be overturned. Well, and that's, that's it is I think, a very serious precedent. The most important precedent of the last half century doesn't mean it's right. It's just right. a precedent. Well, they're treating they're treating some of these cases. Uh, the left treats some of these cases as if they are, you know, the, the Decalogue. It's, it's one of the ten commandments of progressivism. This will always be the law. Re, uh, failing to see that that can be changed, but it. I was struck actually by another theme that was that's coming out of the left in terms of um, messaging, uh, particularly as we get into midterm election season. Uh, they're saying, look, we have two countries now. We have we have a uh, and the court has been captured by one side. That's the side that is scared, violent uh, and reactionary with regard to all the good progressive changes, the, the way that this world has changed in so many good ways. The fact that we don't call women women anymore because that's not inclusive. The fact that, you know, your kids are going to get critical race theory. That's just progress. So they, they see this kind of panoply of things that the vast majority of Americans either aren't aware of until they confront it directly or when they do confront it, don't like, and they're saying, you're the, you're the, you're the rear guard. You're just, you're bigoted, you're behind the times. And now we have a court that's been captured by that mindset and they're gonna do everything they can to stop our forward march into progress. It's very, very, it, it harks back to a lot of the progressive era rhetoric, when again, this was a time of great change where the court was was very activist on a number of fronts. And so I, it, it strikes me as just one of those cyclical historical moments. They are, they are likely to lose long-term politically making that argument because they don't have the numbers. But right now in the midst of all this turmoil, I think it's very appealing for them, again, to Noah's earlier point, that way they don't actually have to talk about the details of abortion and legislating that. Well, I mean, I want to say there's, Kate Zernke has a very good and interesting piece in the New York Times about what's going on at the state level, you know, in Missouri and Mississippi and Texas and Oklahoma, and how you can source back the increasing activism of state legislatures getting ready for the possible overturning of Roe and Casey with these pieces of legislation or wanting to use those pieces of legislation to test Roe and Casey. And she sources it back to 2010 and the absolute slaughter of Democrats in the midterm elections in 2010. Now, we've all focused on the slaughter of Democrats in 2010 at the House level, right? The shellacking, 63 House Republican, you know, net gains by House Republicans. But as she says, that was chicken feed compared to what happened at the state and local level and throughout the Obama years, where, as Noah and I wrote at the after the 2016 election, a thousand state legislative seats during the Obama year switched from Democrat to Republican. Republicans ended up with 66 state legislatures in which they had control out of the 99 in the United States. 66, they had governorships, they had whatever. It was like an amazing thing. And why did it happen this way? Because Democrats overreached, because Obama overreached. Because he gave people in a lot of these states, he gave them a vision of what an untrammeled liberal left government was going to do. And they rose up at all levels of government to say, no, you've gone too far. You've got 375 electoral votes. You won 54% of the vote in 2008 and you went too far. You do not, this mandate you claim to have to fundamentally transform the United States with form of socialized health care, partial nationalization of the auto industry, control over the banking system, all of that, you've gone too far. So in that sense, Ron Brownstein and people like that are right, but they don't source it to the right cause, which is they think it's you know, like the silent majority, whatever, the white people struck back because their country was being taken away from them. But in fact, the story is Obama and those, the Obama and the Democrats were feckless and imprudent because if they had husbanded their resources and slowly rolled out stuff and slowly changed, tried to use their power to incrementally change things, score small victories, get them to be larger over time, and change the 
change things before people really understood they were being changed. Instead of saying, we are going to fundamentally transform America in this way. I don't know. It's a counter history. There's no way of knowing what would have happened. But it is true that this world in which Trump gets three, uh, you know, gets three uh, Supreme Court nominations might not have been the case if Obama had a more successful presidency, you know, and Obama didn't have a successful presidency because he went too far. And the results that he scored were not sufficient unto the day to make it clear that Democrats could, should retain should retain the power that they had before. So there's a, I'm just saying there's an interesting conundrum here, which is that they're right that a rear guard action led to this fundamental change, but they do not, they do not consider their responsibility in the reaction, which was a reaction to them and what they did and how they handled things. And they just think that they're good and everything is good and everybody who opposes them is bad and evil and has ill intent, as opposed to, don't be bringing me socialized health care. Did I ask for that? Who told me there was going to be socialized health care? I mean, like, you know, I don't know. Does, does that jive with your guys' sense of things? Uh, thoroughly, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh, um, I, I, yeah, I, go ahead. I mean, there, I do have a concern. It's, it's, you know, when, when, when liberals talk about it, sort of, all right, some states have been captured by, by this, by this um, extreme right-wing minority, and then other states are just doing the right and good thing. Prior to this, we have already seen this sort of warring states kind of dynamic, uh, really, you know, got exacerbated by 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 Trump and states that were that voted for Trump states didn't and then it then it sort of really went sort of turbocharged during the pandemic when states were handling the pandemics differently and so I, I am concerned that as we enter like this age of interesting federalism now you know as, as this all these issues sort of play out um, in varying in various states like what this is going to exacerbate the great sort and and this 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 like kind of ugly uh, warring states uh, uh, mentality that we have here. Well, you know, we have this weird thing where people are talking about how uh, the extra some of these state laws that say a doctor can't advise a woman on an abortion could those reach beyond state lines? Could a woman go from Missouri to Illinois? cross the river from St. Louis, you know, or from the Quad Cities, go to Illinois, go to an abortion clinic, get advice from a doctor. Could somehow that doctor get arrested if he came into, you know, drove into Missouri to go to a Royals game and, you know, and was stopped by the cops because he gave advice on abortion. And as Biden said in his brief speech, like, this is not how America works. I mean, obviously, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't, so that's an interesting way of looking at it, the way liberals are talking about it, which I think might be pretty effective in scaring people about this. And on the other hand, like, they're the ones, it's Ron Brownstein in the Atlantic who was sort of cheering on the idea that we're now two countries. Because what, if you're two countries, then um, you're kind of at war. There, there are good people and bad people, and you have to be at war with the bad. And if they're all, if you could all lo localize them, in geographical centers, then we can have a nice big war because, you know, New York and California are so much bigger than, you know, New York, California and Illinois. So whatever are so much bigger. They have so many more people in them. Well, and he also and his ilk uh, falsely believe that they still have uh, an ironclad grip on cultural institutions. I mean, they're sort of a ruling. They have a ruling class mentality. And when a ruling class mentality uh, gets hit with a defeat, which this was for them, there is a moment. I, I think they're still reeling in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. um, but they have neglected to, to think about the younger generation of Americans, Gen Z in particular, where pro-life views are actually more popular than I think the Ronald Brown scenes of the world might not uh, might, might want to acknowledge. Now, those views might change over time, um, but I still come back to this notion that the, the, the idea that, um, you know, 
first trimester, uh, no, no restrictions in the first trimester is sort of a, the, the position that most Americans would agree on. And you have, for example, even a Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, announced over the weekend that he would support legislation that would ban abortion after 15 or even up to 20 weeks, um, with exceptions for rape, incest, and in the life of the mother. That that right there captures almost perfectly where most Americans are. And immediately a Democratic uh, member of the Virginia Senate, which did, so the Democrats control the Senate, but not the House in Virginia, um, announced, no way, no way. That's just too restrictive, too restrictive. So I think you're, that's actually how it should work out. You should see, you, you want to see, you know, Republicans propose stuff that then Democrats swat down because it's considered too extreme when in fact, it's exactly reflective of the population. But it works the exact opposite way. Okay, too. you know what? Yes. I got to interrupt exactly. you, Noah. Exactly. No, I got to interrupt you because we're we're like well into the podcast, and I got to start doing some. I got to start doing some spots, and uh, one of them really uh, is directly reflective of this. That's um, I, I want to talk to you about uh, the new episode of Dan Sinor's Call Me Back podcast. Uh, Dan's been on the show. Dan, I, I've talked to you about this podcast, um, and his new one is a is a doozy. Uh, he talks to Mike Murphy, the uh, legendary uh, Republican political consultant um, and somebody who has gotten a lot of pro-life politicians uh, elected in, in the United States. Uh, now, uh, ideologically very complicated because he's very anti-Trump. But um, Murphy, uh, who is one of the most entertaining uh, talkers in America, uh, just goes through a whole panoply of uh, changes represented and possibilities represented by by the Dobbs decision. And he, for example, has this great riff on how, while everybody says that women are, you know, th this is a war on women and uh, women are overwhelmingly supportive of abortion, he points out that, you know, uh, one in five women uh, under the age of 40 um, is pro-life. And uh, the, these people are completely invisible in our culture. They do not exist according to our culture. We don't see them. They're not represented in opinion. The idea is that they're sort of swamped. And one in five people is a lot of people, particularly in closely run and closely held elections. And if they, they are also like a sleeping beast. And if you, and maybe they've, they've been in a position to vote other ways and, and for other things, but if abortion moves to center stage and Democrats believe, as I think they believe, despite what Christine said about younger people, that, um, you know, that this is a real uh, chance for them to motivate younger voters who tend not to vote in midterm elections to come out and protect and defend their right to an abortion, um, that there's a there's a significant cohort of them that may go the other direction and in a way that will tell against uh, the democratic hopes that abortion is going to be a help to them in the midterm election. So that is dancing or call me back podcast. You can download it on Google play stitch or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Um, it's just, uh, it's just great. And uh, also a chance for me to talk to you uh, again about uh, David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. And you may say to yourself, well, what do 250 economic truths have to do with, uh, you know, the pro-life cause or, you know, the Dobbs decision? And the whole point about David's perspective as a, as a, as a conservative, but a money manager who manages, you know, three and a half billion dollars um, is that he comes to it with a philosophy about human flourishing and uh, the role of religion in American life and American politics that is very singular, very educated, very dedicated. And you can see how the things jibe when you get his book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or however you want to read, get this book and read it. And one last, one last thing I got to talk to you about are bowl and branch sheets. Using the best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for a superior softness and better night's sleep. They're not just buttery, breathable, and impossibly comfortable. They get softer with every wash. Um, they use the highest quality threads on earth. These sheets are made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by three US presidents, over 10,000 stellar reviews. They come in nine neutral colors in all sizes from twin up to California King. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets. They're hundred percent free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde or other harsh chemicals. 
They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowen Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code COMMENTARY. Um, so, Noah, uh, let's move on to talk. Uh, some you know rank politics as 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 Jonah Goldberg says. Um, so there is this general sense that this is maybe this a gift to Democrats who are facing unbelievably bad headwinds. We just saw a new piece of datum today where Goldman Sachs did some study on when things politics are really bad in midterm elections for for parties, and it has to do with disposable income and disposable income for Americans is now even worse than it was, is, is arguably almost as bad as inflation in terms of Americans and their disposable income. And obviously their disposable income is eaten away by inflation. Um, we also have this other story from AP, a study that shows that uh, the vast majority of people who are switching parties are switching from a Democrat to Republican. And that includes, yes, suburban women, exactly where, where Republicans need them to to get those seats back that were taken away from them in 2018 uh, during the anti-Trump wave. So, uh, uh, what are you? How are you feeling about uh, how are you feeling about the politics here? I don't know. Tough to say. Um, one of the things I was about to mention before we went to commercial break is um, that the, there's sort of a double-edged sword here because, as you were saying, the same voters who spent the 2010s. You know, voting in Republicans as a bulwark against progressive activist legislation, all of a sudden woke up uh, over the weekend to find out the very same people who they voted in just to serve as a check on Democrats have been incubating views about abortion that are way outside what they believe. And all of a sudden they woke up with abortion bans in Texas and Ohio and Missouri, places that got real red over the 2010s um, that were otherwise you know, not. And a lot of this has to do with uh, Democratic uh, lethargy on the issue. But Michigan voters probably had no idea that they had a century old abortion ban on the books. But nobody ever got around to repealing the thing. Um, so everybody's sort of waking up to legislative lethargy. But they didn't vote in these kind of restrictions that they're seeing. And I bet most of them are who are inclined to vote on this issue will be uh, residents of dark blue enclaves in dark red states, um, which will have the effect, uh, if it has an effect at all in the midterms of blunting, uh, perhaps some of Republicans gains in these states. And it certainly could have the effect of uh, statewide races of limiting Republicans gains um, statewide, or in part also because a lot of these very flawed candidates have views on abortion that are more in, uh, more in line with the activist class than not. But who is the median midterm voter? older, educated, has a history of voting in elections, every election, not just generals. Um, and that is not the kind of electorate that Democrats want to see. They want to see a much younger, more enthusiastic um, voting base. And the urgent concern, as Christine said, for these voters is likely the fact that they've watched $20,000 of their 401k disappear over the course of the last three months. Uh, a hypothetical around abortion probably makes them a little queasy they're not happy about it and they don't want to endorse it with their vote. And Republicans would be wise to give them the option to not endorse that, their views with their vote, which I said earlier, especially for candidates at the federal level, they should defer to the logic in the majority opinion and say, this is a local issue. It has nothing to do with the federal government. I have views. They're mine views. I hope you share them. That has not, nothing to do with what I'm going to legislate on, whether you believe them or not. That's the out that they need. And if they well, give them that out then it shouldn't have any significant effect on the polls. When the draft opinion came out in, in um, Alito's draft opinion two months ago, precisely one poll registered any change in the generic ballot preference over the course of that two month period. The same poll is out today showing an even more pronounced effect, a shift towards Democrats. It has yet to be confirmed by anybody else in the field. And I'm inclined to view that as an outlier. Can I, can also, I just, oh, sorry. I was just going to add to that. I just want to make a point about it. 
No, no, I, I was just going to say one quick thing, which is you also have the risk, very real risk that Democrats will now, and Biden in particular is going to be eager to do this. They're going to only talk about abortion. And for people whose pocketbooks are still hurting and who still are looking at the price of gas, and especially have spent a summer where they can't afford a vacation, they're going to want to be able to hear some answers still about the economy and about the and Republicans you know, might take that bait. They might. I mean, I don't know. Like Biden is this week is in is in is in Europe this week and is doing foreign policy in Ukraine and uh, and economic stuff, uh, which is interesting because it's like um, if if I think if he had really wanted to spend the entire time talking about abortion, he could have canceled. You know, this, we're in a national emergency. Could have canceled this trip in that national emergency sense. But this is actually why he wants to be president is to go and lord it over everybody at these meetings. So that's going to blunt a little bit of this also, because um, his message this week is going to be all about this uh, effort to uh, create a Western alternative to China's Belt and Road strategy. And what what kinds of ways are we going to shore up the long term support we have for Ukraine's fight against Russia and 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 other and other stuff like that. So that that may also slow things. And I just wanted to make a point about this NPR poll, NPR Maris poll that Noah mentioned, which is that uh, the NPR, the article written today by NPR about its own poll, which shows Democrats ahead on the generic ballot question, which is, would you today vote for a Democrat or Republican for Congress if the election were held today, has risen to eight points in the Democrats' favor. That's an outlier. There's no other poll. I think every other poll that we have actually has Republicans in the lead, but this is the first poll that was taken after the Dobbs decision. However, as Noah says, it was five points last month that Democrats had a had a lead, but and it was a Republican lead of three points in April. In the write-up today by NPR, they skip over whoever wrote it in an effort to make it look as though there has been a wildly dramatic shift. Skipped over the May number, says in April, Republicans were ahead 47-44. Now Democrats are ahead 48-41 or something like that, 49-41. I can't remember what it is. Skips over the fact that the poll has been trending in in the Democratic direction since May. Like they are, the article itself is an act of misdirection and uh, false narrative, like right, right there. It's kind of staggering. Um, I don't ordinarily want to do like cheap media criticism of one article online explaining a poll, but, but you know, that's not going to help them. Like telling a tale that isn't true to make them feel better about how the public has turned on, has turned on the Republicans. Until we see two or three other polls show a significant shift in, in 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 the polling atmosphere toward Democrats as a result of Dobbs, we really don't know that that's happened yet. And if Democrats want to make this an issue in the midterms, and I think they have no choice but to make this an issue in the midterms, because what else have they got? It's a two-pronged strategy. You can't just say, well, this is this new status quo is terrible. You have to advocate for a new status quo. You know, tell you what you're going to do and what you're going to vote on and what you're going to pursue. And if you want to make this a federal issue, then you have to submit federal legislation in Congress that would, now I think this ruling probably suggests that's unconstitutional, but Congress can do unconstitutional things all day long if they want to. And one of the things they should probably do is advance, and this this is gaining steam uh, on the among left-wing writers, uh, so it'll eventually make its way to the legislature. Um, when, when they attempted to codify, codify Roe, I think in February, uh, it failed dismally in part because it was so extreme, went well beyond Roe. But you can break that down into its constituent parts and force votes. And if that's if Democrats really want to have a, a midterm strategy based around Roe, they will have to have skin in the game and submit what they want as an alternative to this new intolerable status quo. Republicans have an advantage there insofar as they don't have to say anything at the state level they do um well, and well, the gubernatorial have, races they do but for federal races they they can remain silent and defer look we're going to have a real world test case of this in pennsylvania in the senate race in pennsylvania where john fetterman is significantly ahead of dr oz the democrat against the republican so fetterman who looks like this is a kind of you know fake he's a rich kid who went to Harvard, but, you know, he looks like a trucker, you know, with his six, eight with his beard and his short pants and all of this. Anyway, um, 
so he has now taken an, a, a totally extreme pro-choice up to the moment and maybe after the moment of birth position uh, at, at this weekend. No rules. Nobody has the right to restrict anything ever. Oz is a very slippery character and, you know, ran as a MAGA guy and has no fixed principles and obviously is a snake oil salesman of a very high vintage and stuff like that. And we could have an interesting test case of what Noah says here in that Senate race where Fetterman has now put himself firmly on the side of the most extreme pro-choice position. And Oz can say, I'm not there. I, uh, you know, to... I think there there should be some restrictions on abortion. I'm on, abortion stops a beating heart. Da, 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 da. But he, but who's going to force him to codify his position? Now maybe he will be forced. I don't know how that works. You know, it's all people can say whatever they want to or not say whatever they want to. But that's the one case where you can see a complicated Senate race. This happened in Ohio too. Tim Ryan, who was the Democratic candidate, who was pro life until 2015 when he decided to run for president and suddenly decided he was no longer pro-life also kind of went the whole way and kind of said this is between a woman and her doctor at all stages and at all levels i don't know what the polling is showing there between him and jd vance but you're you're giving a possibility of the guys who are supposed to seem too extreme Vance and 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 Oz, let's say, to maybe seem not so extreme if they're if the guys they're running against are you know basically saying you can crush a baby skull when it's the head is halfway out out of the out of the birth canal uh, if you want to that's fine with me which is of course what Ralph Northam said uh, in that notorious appearance in 2019 or whenever it was I mean that that is not good that is not a good odor at this moment so I don't know it's. The politics are very, everybody who assumes the politics are going to help Democrats has to reckon with what Democrats are going to say and what it is that they're willing to codify. Because if do they're we have, willing, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, do we have a single example of, a, of a, a Democratic political leader speaking to the nuance of this issue, speaking to, you know, as as Noah has said, to the queasiness people feel, even if they support no, you know, support rights to abortion in the first trimester. I haven't heard anyone eloquently outline to uh, his or her public and his or her voters that sensibility. They, It's almost as if they're just not speaking about it at all if they can't say yes pro-choice all the way because our you know it's the handmaid's tale i think that that is really what they have to do and if they leave that if they leave people like oz and and jd vance to speak to the nuance and they really have missed an opportunity so it's uh, you know bill clinton famously and brilliantly came up with that phrase right safe legal and rare you know, that he would ideally like abortion to be rare. That is the missing element of all democratic rhetoric. Now, Clinton was living in an atmosphere in which he needed Southern evangelicals to vote for him who were pro-life. And that was also when urban Democrats, when the Reagan Democrats were still Democrats in Macomb County, Michigan, places like that, represented by democratic members of Congress who were pro-life, like David Obie of Michigan, there was a whole rump of pro-life Democrats and they died. Some of them lost in 94. Some of them like went to jail, like Dan Rostenkowski. But there was such a creature who helped moderate Democratic rhetoric. Uh, they no longer exist. I think there's like one. Is there one pro-life Democrat in the House? I think Henry Quayler. Uh, huh? Henry Quayler. Right. And and right. And he was targeted for being pro-life. So uh and you leadership know, saved know. him. Leadership saved him. Yeah. Anyway, it's a very interesting moment. So I'm just saying the conflicting politics, we just, we shouldn't assume that Democrats aren't going to talk themselves into being, into saying things that are going to bite them in the ass in November well, 8th. I assume it's going to happen on both sides. I assume that they're going to say radical things and that the Republicans, as, as Noah has alluded to, <clears throat> are going to say obnoxious, triumphalist things. Um, yeah. and we already so had one example is, of this this congress this congresswoman from from Illinois who slipped up and thanked Trump for saving white life, right? Um, the same person who said Hitler was right that we needed to inspire the youth. 
Um, so yeah, we have a real. Uh, well, I'm very unclear on, on that huh? one, though. By the way, there's some. She's got a family picture where she's got a. If if it's indeed a an a actual picture of her family, she's got a significant number of uh, ethnic minorities in her family, uh-huh. many more than most white people I know. So, I, that's I, why I don't make risks. I'm just know, saying it doesn't people, matter what her what her, I'm saying that yeah any any of saying those things dumb things is not the big risk. The big risk here is on the part of the fact that both both these coalitions have no room for nuanced or are conflicting or even half-baked ideas on this issue, which is the majority of the country. So they have no room for majorities. Well, Neither I'm not sure that's right. Because... A majoritarian approach to this issue. They will, both of them, go on the hunt for heretics and apostates. But we've got Christine, we've got, we've got Christine saying, Yunkin says 15 weeks. And I think DeSantis is basically saying 15 weeks because that's the that's the Florida law. I'll be surprised in. if DeSantis holds that that position. Sure. But there are quite a few well, very he, activist right wing Republicans signed right it into law, not tolerate he? the idea of a, of a 15 week ban as being anything other than a moral atrocity, especially when the legal barriers to protecting life at all stages are no longer there. Christine, it's fantastic to have you back after this very sad month that we've that we've spent without you. Uh, very glad to be you. back. <laughs> and you're back, and you're 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 going to be in and out over the summer, as 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 by the way, as is Noah, who's going to be promoting his very soon to be published book, Rise of the New Puritans. Pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, but we will be, you know, but we'll we'll somehow muddle through with or without the two of you over the summer. But uh, again, great to have you back. And for Christine and Noah and Naomi, I'm John Paul Keep the candle burning.